Pastini is Eugene's new Italian bistro at Oakway Center, dedicated to serving up two of life's greatest pleasures, pasta and wine. Join them for classic favorites like spaghetti and meatballs, linguine with clams and sausage, and fettuccine Alfredo paired with hand-selected Pacific Northwest and Italian wines. Pastini. Eat pasta. Drink wine. Welcome to the Duck Pod. From the Register Guard Newsroom, here's Ryan Thorburn and Austin Meek. Okay, as promised, we're back and we're going to welcome our guest this week is Ralph Russo, Associated Press, National College Football Writer. Ralph, it's uh, so great to have you on our podcast finally. Uh, I believe this is the first time, but anyway, it's been a long time. I don't think I've seen you in a press box since... Laramie, I think you were at the Oregon-Wyoming game in 2017. Uh, maybe with Oregon rising up a little bit this year, we'll see you again, but it's great to catch up. Yeah, good call. Good memory. That was the last Oregon game I covered. And, you know, what's, what's memorable, I was there mostly for Josh Allen. But I do remember a bunch of the scouts and the folks that I was talking to that day saying, you know, Herbert's better. <laughs> so so the, the irony is now we're back, uh, you know, what a, a year and a half or so later, and waiting to see how you know where Justin Herbert will soar in the uh, when it comes to draft class and how he will do this year for the Ducks. Yeah, well, why don't we just start there since uh, we're on the topic already? Uh, you know, you've had a chance to obviously go to the national championship game and see Tua up close and personal, Trevor Lawrence. Where do you see Justin, especially if Oregon is able to, to compete for a Pac-12 championship, where do you see him kind of rising in terms of his college status in, instead of just being this NFL prospect? Yeah, you know, last year, gosh, I think I actually picked Herbert to win the Heisman last year, which wow. might have been a little bit of a, <laughs> hey, let's try to be a little different here. Um, uh, here's, here's what I would say. Listen, I mean, all the all the physical skills are there. He looks like... Uh, what NFL quarterbacks tend to look like as far as size, and, and even with the athleticism now. I mean, you know, we talk about how quarterbacks are more like Kyler Murray are getting a chance, this idea that you can be a guy who runs around and maybe be a little undersized. But he's got that aspect of the game too, right? He's got a certain amount of athleticism. I, I just think that, you know, the physical package is certainly there. I, I would think we would just like to see a little more consistent production a little more consistent accuracy to it now to, to defend Justin a little bit too. He doesn't have four future NFL wide receivers running routes for him like Tua does and even Trevor Lawrence. I mean, what was a revel- revelation, not just Trevor, Trevor Lawrence wasn't just a revelation through that national championship run last year for Clemson. It was the sophomore and freshman receivers like Ross and, and T. Higgins that were catching the ball for him. So I think Herbert has a chance to be one of the dominant players in the country, one of the best quarterbacks in the country, and a top draft pick. Um, I think some of it is on him to improve his play and the coaches to get an offense that around him that produces more consistently. And, and some of it is on his supporting cast. And, and I mean, I guess this year... As you guys know, probably the biggest question mark on that offense is what you'll get out of those wide receivers. 
Yeah, I think you framed that really well. Uh, it, whatever Justin Herbert is as a quarterback, he's he's only as good as the team around him, uh, and he's got some really good pieces around him. That offensive line uh, brings back five guys uh, who have experience. Uh, you know, the running back position should be more experienced than it than it was last year. Uh, but the receiving core is a question, and and I think you uh, you pointed out that there are some questions just philosophically about Oregon's offense and and whether it's put Justin Herbert in the best position to succeed. So all that being said, when you look at this Oregon team on paper, uh, the AP preseason poll is going to come out uh, you know, sometime in the fairly near future. Where do you think Oregon fits in there? Are they a top 10 team, top 15, top 20? Where, where would you slot the Ducks? Yeah, the momentum, and just to, to be clear, as I always have to point out, I, I don't vote. Uh, guys like Ryan vote, and Austin, you may have even voted at one Yeah, yeah, way back in the day, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, you know, AP employees don't vote. We pick the voters. We count up the votes. We, you know, administer the poll and then throw it out there on Sundays, and then people yell at me on Twitter. <laughs> That's the way that usually works. Um, but, you know, listen, I think the momentum is probably for – Oregon to be back half of the top 10 or maybe fall slightly out of the top 10. If I had to guess, like the 9 to 12 range probably sounds about right. Um, Now, where would I have them? You know, if I take a step back and I'm just sort of making my own top 10, I don't know. You know, I might, I, I was wondering, I meant to ask you guys, so earlier this week on my own podcast, one of the things in talking with, you know, my guest. I had we had sort of drifted into Pac-12 conversation, and I had mentioned, hey, you know, I think I'm going to be the guy who's going to tap the brakes on Oregon this year. There's a lot of hype on Oregon, and I think I'm tempted to sort of take a step back and say, boy, can they make that big of a jump? Now, I don't know if you guys had listened to that, and that was the reason I thought it was interesting that you reached out this week to have me on, but I'll I'll, I'll stick with that stance. Um, you know, I, I think I might be more inclined to have them somewhere between 12 and 17, you know, 12 and 18, something in that middle of the top 25, I, just because it's it's hard to go from, you know, eight or nine wins to 11. That's a, just a huge jump, and as much as there's a lot of good pieces in place, uh, you know, again, that's every coach will tell you that's the biggest jump to make. And so I'm going to always be a little cautious about predicting a jump like that. For the record, Ralph, I did listen, and I believe your <laughs> guest was Stephen Godfrey. And uh, it's a really good podcast. Uh, we all should plug each other's podcasts when we can. It's I think it's the aptly named Associated Press Top 25 podcast, right? Yeah, we are uh, true to the brand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah slap that name on just about everything. So as you mentioned, you guys did touch on the Pac-12, and obviously out here there's been a lot of coverage of Larry Scott and, you know, the failures, at least on the field and on the court in men's basketball, uh, football, uh, falling behind financially from the AC, the SEC and Big Ten. Um, from your national view um, out in New York, what do you think of it? Is it is it Larry Scott's fault? Is it USC's fault? What's what's going on with the Pac-12, and and is it cyclical? Can they get back in the mix here soon? Yeah, I mean there there are certain buckets here that um, that 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 get sort of responsibility for these issues. You know, Larry Scott's leadership um, 
has been questionable at times. Now, you got to remember, I always have to preface this. When Larry Scott took over, this was a mom-and-pop-run league to a certain degree. The Pac-12 was so far behind the other conferences at a time when, you know, even the, the huge leaps and, you know, leaps and bounds forward that have been going on in college sports over the last few years hadn't occurred, but they were still lagging behind in so many ways as far as TV distribution and revenue and things along, along those lines, or, or TV exposure and revenue distribution. So they made this huge vault forward with Scott, but I think it's fair to say that they, they, they probably, at least in the near term, now this is still a bet that they're hoping to cash out on uh, eventually, but not having a partner with the network as opposed to owning the entire network and then rolling the dice that, you know, in 2024, Google or Amazon would come in and, and, and lavish them with these huge rights. Um, so owning the network and not having a partner probably in the short term ended up being not a great idea and, and cost the Pac-12 a bunch of money. And then, you know, all the things that Scott does management-wise as far as his salary and paying other administrators and executives, that stuff all ends up just not looking good, right? If nothing, if nothing else, you have a perception problem there. There's also a lot of stuff that is wrong in the Pac-12 right now that has nothing to, that is not landing on Larry Scott's desk. And there are inherent issues with, you have uh, teams that are, you know, residing in pro markets. So it will never be like the SEC. A Cal will never be like, you know, a Big 12 school or, or, or a Big 10 school or an SEC school that's going to drive. And there's a whole bunch of markets like that where you're not going to, you know, you're not filling 80,000 seat stadiums and getting all kinds of sponsorship around your, your teams because there's just not the, that level of fan interest. And that's, you know, and, and time zones are an issue as well as that. And those are things that are inherent to the Pac-12 and will always be there that you're just going to have to work around. And then there, there are sort of the campus-level issues. Campus-level issues at Oregon. Like Oregon falling, falling off after its heights under chip is, was a problem for the Pac-12. And no more are those campus-level issues a problem than at USC. Because while the rest of the Pac-12 fans, and I, I talked to David Shaw about this, and he'll roll his eyes when I mention something along the lines of, like, you know, USC really, you know, would really help the Pac-12 if USC is better because they don't want to hear that. They want to hear like you know guys like Shaw and the rest of the league will say, no, 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 we, we can be good too. It doesn't mean our league isn't good if USC isn't good. But USC has the highest ceiling in the Pac-12 by far. Like by far, it's the one program that really has a championship level ceiling because of all the things that go into what that means. You know, recruiting territory, history, uh, the ability to raise a lot of money and, and attract players and coaches. And when USC is running incompetently, it really drags down the rest of the conference. And I could say the same thing to a lesser degree at UCLA. Uh, Washington has gotten its act together, and that's a good thing. Um, so, that, you know, sort of a long-winded and winding answer. To, you know, again, there's lots of different buckets here. But I do think if USC could just straighten itself out, you end up a situation somewhat the way the Big 12 has. Like, you know, for so long, the, the Big 12's issues were, hey, Texas, just get your act together. I do think if USC should just simply get its act together, it would go a long way towards helping some of these, fixing some of these Pac-12 problems. You brought up campus issues, and that's a nice transition into uh, something that you're working on right now. So one of the campus issues at Oregon was the fact that uh, they had to fire Mark Helfrich, and the coach they brought in, Willie Taggart, 
was only there for a year. And uh, if you know, if if you look at the national perception of the Pac-12, it certainly doesn't help that a coach comes into what for the Pac-12 is a marquee job at Oregon and leaves a year later to go to Florida State. so you've been uh, you've been in contact with Willie Taggart recently, uh, working on a, a story about uh, his uh, sort of tenuous situation at Florida State, even though he's only been there a year. But the first year uh, was was definitely a rocky start. What's the outlook for Willie Taggart uh, a year after he bolted Oregon to go to Florida State? Yeah, I was down in Tallahassee, I guess about a week and a half ago, compared to when we're recording this, and. You know, listen, I, I think you guys got a taste of Willie Taggart. I, I think he's a pretty confident guy. I think he's a really positive guy. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that he, I think the thing, the, the, the main takeaway for me is, and is Taggart has been through these sort of rebuilds before. Now, obviously, at Oregon, it was one and done, so let's put that aside. Let's put that, though he did a pretty decent job of, of sort of, getting things on track at Oregon, but I understand, listen, after one year, you know, it's hard to really judge. Um, But at Western Kentucky, he walked into a a, a terrible program and got it, and after a couple of years of of, of sort of, you know, fixing things and rebuilding, he got it up and running, and Western Kentucky went on a a very nice, successful run under different coaches after he left. And South Florida, he went into a bad situation, and it took him a couple of years, and he floundered a little bit, and there was a couple of little misfires. But then after about two and a half years, he got things set, and they went on a nice run. Um, And I think the assumption was, well, this is Florida State. This is not Western Kentucky. This is not South Florida. This is Florida State does not rebuild. But the fact of the matter is, Florida State needed to rebuild. The the last couple of years of of the Jimbo Fisher era were were bad in a lot of different ways. Uh, It was poorly constructed roster. There were as Willie put it, social and academic issues. Um, you know, the, that, that term culture change gets thrown a lot in college sports, and I think sometimes we can poo-poo it, but I, I think he had a lot of players who were not on board um, walking in there last year after what Fisher did as far as bailing out on them during the season. I think where Willie will have um, – will benefit is there's a new athletic director in there. He is an interim. He was an interim athletic director. He was formerly the chief of staff of the president of the university. And I think they're restructuring their athletic department a little bit. I think that he now is an athletic director who will support him and who understands very well, intimately, that he walked into a little bit more of a mess than I think maybe a lot of fans, especially those of us, you know, sort of way outside the program thought. Uh, the other thing where he will benefit Willie as far as um, the patience that has allowed him to do his rebuilding is that Florida State is not in a very good position right now uh, financially. They're going to run the red next year, I think, their athletic department by a few million dollars. Ticket sales have been off a little bit. And they're not really in a position to fire a coach after two years. And I, I don't have the buyout numbers at hand, but it's, it's about 20-odd million dollars. They're not in a position. So... Uh, while they certainly need to be better this year uh, than five and seven, there's probably some room for him to have only a small step forward and not have the rug pulled out from under him la- uh, like you know this year. Uh, there's got to be improvement though because you know if, if you slide back from five and seven, they may 
make those you know those mon- those financial concerns might not be as big a concern <laughs> going forward. Well, I know that uh, Duck Twitter obviously had uh, a gleeful time with what was happening at Florida State last year, but I think one thing Willie did that e- even the most uh, hardened uh, fans around here w- would have to admit is he energized recruiting at Oregon. Uh, at one time, they had the number one class before Willie left. Uh, Mark Mario Cristobal had the number seven class last year, which was historic for Oregon, the best ever since the rankings came out. Their 2020 class is number 10 right now. Uh, I'm just curious, what is your perception of Mario? Obviously, he's a good recruiter. Uh, and his staff, Marcus Royal, a young offensive coordinator who's taken some guff around here. And now they have Andy Avalos coming from Boise State uh, to replace Jim Levitt. What do you think of the coaching staff at Oregon? Is it in place to, to, to position them where they can build on a 9-1 year and maybe compete for the Pac-12 championship? like it and I like the idea of the way Mario has built it through things the way he sort of is comfortable building it you know really putting an emphasis on these offensive linemen uh, recruiting getting into recruiting battles and winning big battles right you know uh, bringing in Thibodeau as one of the number one of the top players in the country and and listen the only way you're going to really compete for national championships I understand Chip Kelly didn't have a lot of top 10, any top 10 recruiting classes, and they had a system that worked really well, and they reached these new heights. But generally speaking, if you're going to compete at the level Oregon wants to compete at and sort of recreate the chip era, you're going to have to win more recruiting battles the way Mario Cristobal has won them and have classes that are more top 10, top 15 than that 15 to 25 range. So uh, you know that would give me confidence that that they should that they're in pretty good shape. They're recruiting in a way that leads me to believe that while I may be a little skeptical to make that big jump this year from nine to an eleven or twelve win team, it does seem like they're heading in that direction. I mean, it does seem like we're going to get to the point where Oregon is winning double digits pretty regularly under Cristobal. I thought he, you know, I thought Cristobal did a, a pretty good job in the bad situation when he was you know down in florida when his first job came in under his first job i think having that alabama way having having had a sniff of what what it takes to you know what what the nick saban process is like um certainly helps him so you know as far as the coordinators we'll see I'll, i'll hold out i'll hold out judgment on avalos and arroyo as they you know as they sort of work in a little longer, especially Avalos in his first season, Arroyo being a guy who is, you know, promising but still young and a little inexperienced. But I think at the top, they're in pretty good hands with Cristobal because of, again, the philosophy of recruiting, the way they recruit, and if, if you're going to if you're going to recruit the way they're going to recruit, I, I, I just think that that put, places you in a position to compete for Pac-12 championships and maybe even you know move on to, to being a national championship contender again. Well, Ralph, last question I have for you here. Uh, it's it's the middle of the summer. Uh, as a national college football writer, I'm sure you're knee-deep right now and uh, just sort of digging into all of the schools across the country. So as we set up this this upcoming college football season, give me the two or three most interesting storylines for you that you think we're all going to be talking about this season. You know, it's hard to get away from this Clemson-Alabama 
basically chokehold on college football. So I think the story then becomes, is, is, is it possible to break that? Right? Is, is, are there, is there a team or, or are there teams out there that will prevent us from doing another you know, Clemson, Alabama part five, I guess it would be? Mm-hmm. You know? um, and it, quite frankly, I don't know. I mean, if you had told me, if, you, if I gave you, or if you gave me, I should say, Clemson and Alabama or the field, I'm probably taking Clemson and Alabama. Now, who, who out there could possibly challenge and break up the monopoly? Nobody in the ACC especially now that Florida State is in the, in the middle of a rebuild. I think Georgia is a, is a wild card, not, not necessarily a wild card. I think Georgia's moving into a place where at some point Kirby's going to get Nick, right? At some point that, that's going to flip uh, because the way, again, going back to recruiting, the way Kirby's recruiting. But, but when is the question? And then what happens with the rest of the country? And then, you know, the other storylines is what is happening with the, the rest of the country. Again, I think a huge storyline is the Pac-12. And can the Pac-12 situate itself to, to, to get into the playoff this year? You know, I know that the Big Ten's been left out a couple of times in, in the last few years, but Pac-12 has been left out three times. And, and can Oregon or Washington or, or somebody else break through and, and, and get in there it will be fascinating. And I think if you look toward the Big Ten, obviously Ohio State's always a contender to, again, break the monopoly possibly. They, they, they have talent at the level of an, or, or of an Alabama and Clemson, though not, not, maybe not quite totally at that level, but they're in the ballpark. But there's so much intrigue going on in the Big Ten because there's so much transition, right? Ryan Day and a new quarterback at Ohio State. Penn State has sort of is entering a new era. Michigan has an, uh, the same quarterback in Jim Harbaugh, but a new offense. So what will happen there? So I think there's a lot of intrigue in, the, in what should be a pretty interesting Big Ten. And I think those are the places where I'm, I'm sort of most fascinated. And then, you know, if you sort of look at the overall issue of where these transfer rules are going in college, not college football and college sports in general, seems to be, you know, a, a constant talking point. Though I think once we get out of the offseason, when the offseason quiet, is quiet, it, that's an easy talking point. Once we get out of the offseason range and start playing games, I think we'll move away from that. Well, certainly the spotlight will be on Oregon when they open the season against Auburn. I'm curious, you know, as a national writer, uh, how do you kind of plan your schedule, and is is there any chance we will possibly see you in Arlington, Texas, on August 31st? There is definitely a chance. You know, it, it's weird. The, the job has changed for guys who sort of and gals who do it the way I do it, which is, again, unlike you, got, unlike you following around one team, where we sort of cover the whole country, game day is not as emphasized as it used to be. Um, so, so in other words, to be at one game and cover the one game, big game, or one of the big games of the day is not quite as valuable as sort of sitting back and seeing the whole country and writing about how X and Y are related and what trends are going on and things along. So sort of big picture. Taking, to, taking into account the big picture on Saturday. So I don't necessarily go to quite as many games as I used to, uh, but I, I, you know, we try to get out a little more maybe during the week. However, you like to start the season with a bang, and Auburn and Oregon is definitely circled. Now, I'm not sure, necessarily sure I'll be there. There's a couple of other possible options, um, 
but if I'm going to get out to a, one, a game that weekend, and most likely I will, it, there's a good chance it'll be Oregon and Auburn. And, you know, listen, if Oregon wins that game, I would be, wouldn't be surprised if uh, I end up in Eugene, kind of like I was a bunch when Marcus Mariota was there. Well, Ralph, uh, we always enjoy reading your coverage for the AP, and we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, we hope we do see you somewhere uh, along the lines, uh, because it's always fun to catch up with you in the press box, whether it's uh, Laramie or Eugene or wherever. So uh, thanks for joining us, and I'm sure we'll see you soon. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Duck Pod. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 